Oh, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, but last week we uh, took a break uh, from the Sermon on the Mount to introduce the first Sunday of Lent and to get us uh, just kind of oriented, you know, taking a look at Lent from a different point of view. Uh, I don't know about you, if you were raised in a church that's, that, uh, you know, observed Lent, it was probably observed from a negative point of view, that you were giving up things that you loved in order to do penance for the things that you did bad. And it was kind of looked at that way. And what we're trying to do is to flip that around and say, okay, we're going to do something negative for a positive reason. We're going to take things out, but we're going to try to take out the distractions, the things that are distracting, the things that are keeping us arm's length away from presence that we've been talking about all morning, presence in the moment, presence with God, presence with each other. And so if we're taking anything out, if you're fasting or doing whatever, it's for that reason. So we want to put a positive spin on it. This is done in order to get closer, to be more connected. We talked about last week that emotional disorders are the result of, generally speaking, an intolerance of uncertainty. And if you remember that, I think that should be on your fridges. Just, you know, emotional disorders are driven by an intolerance of, of uncertainty. And all the things that we do to try to build up certainty, pretending questions are already answered, or continuing to seek more data as, as a more perfect way of erasing all the risk in life, which can never happen. And yet, what Jesus is showing us this, the, the real spiritual journey that Jesus is trying to get us to engage necessitates first a dive into the unknown, a dive into uncertainty, a stripping away of everything that is comforting and comfortable, everything that is familiar, everything that seems to order our lives or helps us to survive, to let it all go so that we can start to actually see what's right in front of us. The idea that you can't fill a full vessel it has to be emptied first. If we really want something that is re truly new, radical, groundbreaking in our lives, then we're going to have to let go of those things. So even though we stepped away from the Sermon on the Mount last week, we didn't step away from the theme that Jesus has been building in Matthew 7 because all of his thematic work in this final chapter of the sermon is geared along the same lines, and we talked about that. And we're going to continue to talk about it this morning as we come back to the sermon. There have been several members here who have come up to me and said that they really did want to try to make Lent like a boot camp for themselves, a time of intensive training to see if they could break through some of these areas in their lives, to really put in place some kind of structure that allowed them to go deeper, to find a deeper awareness about their moments, just in terms of the way that they go through their daily lives, to be more aware of where their thoughts are going, their emotional triggers, to be able to regulate those emotions better because they can actually make choices, and to find a deeper connection with God, and of course with each other at the same time. So as we recast Lent in this new kind of, of positive way, to a positive clearing out rather than a negative doing penance. This is what we're trying to achieve here. And why is this important? Why is it important to start to look at Lent in another way? Well, most churches are really in the business of trying to get us into heaven and avoiding hell. 
I mean, when it comes right down to it, the salvation that is so important to most Western Christian churches is all about that. It's about making sure you have God's approval so you get into heaven after you die and you can avoid hell. It's all about reward and it's about punishment. That is a very different approach than what we're talking about here. It's all about intent. So if we are doing this emptying out of Lent out of the fear of punishment, we're doing it as penance for our sins to try to wipe the slate clean so that we are now out of the punishment arena, then we're just doing it out of fear. But if we are emptying out Lent, ourselves during Lent, as a desire to embrace God in a closer way, to find a closer connection with each other, then that's a whole different aspect. Instead of being motivated by fear, it's not motivated by love. It's motivated by connection. That makes all the difference in the world. Fear comes from the outside in, the things that are imposed upon us. Love comes from the inside out. Jesus is talking always about kingdom being within. It's coming from the inside out. If we don't make that fundamental shift, then everything that Jesus is talking about will go right over our heads, in one ear and out the other. Even if our heads go up and down and we say we agree with the principles that he is teaching here, they will not affect our lives. They won't change anything. They can't because they can't really get in. Our defenses are all up. In fear, our defenses are all up. Nothing gets in and nothing gets out. But even as I say this, even as we say, yes, that sounds good, I think I want to do that, there's a problem. And I think that Richard Rohr states the problem pretty well in the little, I don't know what you would call this, maybe an author's note at the beginning of a book called Everything Belongs. But he's talking about this shape of the journey, this descent, this emptying out, in terms of being inherently unmarketable. (laughs) And listen to what he says. How do you make attractive that which is not? How do you sell emptiness, vulnerability, and non-success? How do you talk descent when everything is about ascent? How can you possibly market letting go in a capitalist culture? How do you present Jesus to a Promethean mind? Now, do you know who Prometheus was? Prometheus is one of the ancient Greek gods. He was actually a titan, which was the pre-Olympian gods. And after a war between the titans and the Olympian gods, and the Olympian gods won, and Zeus is now on top, Prometheus defied Zeus by bringing fire to humankind. Now, fire is uh, a metaphor for arts, sciences, technology, for civilization itself. Prometheus is the one who actually gave us our civilization, gave us our ability to be able to think and to function and do the things that gods do. And for doing that for man, he was uh, sentenced to be bound to a rock every day, and a great eagle, which was the avatar of Zeus, came and ate his liver, (laughs) which to the ancient Greeks was the seed of all emotion. And, uh, but he's a god, right? So every night his liver would grow back and the next day it would happen all over again and over and over and over and over and over. But this Promethean mind, this is, you know, even Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know, the subtitle was a modern Prometheus story or something like that. But the idea was, is anyone who is trying to bring the next level 
of, of technology, of, of arts and sciences, you know, would be a Promethean in that respect. And of course, often it has bad results, right? As did Frankenstein. But this is what he's talking about. How do you present Jesus to a Promethean mind? Someone who is always thinking about ascent. Someone who is always thinking about taking themselves and humanity to the next level. How do you talk about Jesus who is about descending into emptiness first to someone who is so geared this way? How do you talk about dying to a church trying to appear perfect? This is not going to work, he says. (laughs) Admitting this may be my first step. When you think about it, what fills our churches? What really makes a church go? I mean, we've got a small church here because we're trying to sell what's inherently unmarketable, right? But finding power in God that will vanquish your enemies, fix your circumstances, right the wrongs on a big scale, if you have a church that is promoting those ideas, that will fill up the seats. A church that is talking about being lifting us up to perfection, to armor us against vulnerability, Think about the churches who have those sort of messages, prosperity gospels, and so on and so forth. Churches that create prosperity, create wealth. In other words, churches that feed the Prometheus mind with a Christian veneer are the ones that are experiencing the most growth. But if we really want to follow Jesus, as Jesus was trying to present not only himself, but his way of living life, then there has to be something completely different taking place, a radical change. Jesus is always calling us to be one with him and his Father, but the only way to do that is to accept our powerlessness, our vulnerability, to become a servant. This is difficult. It's not sexy. It's not what sells. But this is who Jesus is. This is what he's trying to get across from us. What is going to take us through How do we actually get past the Promethean mind? How do we get past everything in us that is terrified of the descent, terrified of uncertainty, of unknowing? The very place Jesus is leading. I remember, good Lord, it would have to be 25 or 30 years ago when I first started going to a church and the first lunch that I had with the pastor. Uh, we were talking for a while. And I can, you know, I try to s- sometimes from this vantage point, try to sit in his shoes and look at me as I was as a 30-year-old or whatever I was at that time, you know, because I know what he said to me. And I can imagine how I must have appeared, all squirrely and everything, right? But he said, I can see divine dissatisfaction in you. He called it divine dissatisfaction. And I'd never heard that term before. I didn't even really know what he meant. And I didn't know how dissatisfaction could be divine in any way, shape, or form. I get it now, but I didn't get it then. And I didn't know that he was actually quoting a dancer, which makes no sense, because he was much more of a football guy, right? But Martha Graham, who was a famous dancer and choreographer of the early 20th century, She talks about divine dissatisfaction. She said, no artist is pleased. Now, she's talking to another dancer here, you know, who is struggling, trying to get her craft up to a certain level. And and she just did a performance, and she was heartbroken by it. And she says, no artist is pleased. There is only a divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive. Now, for those of you who are artists, 
You know, those of you who have, have done anything, really, you know, are you ever really completely satisfied with your work? Or is there always something that you're looking at, something that's driving you further on? Is there a design, divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that is pushing you and pulling you into something more? Augustine of Hippo said, my heart is restless until it rests in thee. Another way of putting it. Our desire is what can take us across the fear. Our desire, if it's restless still, if it's divinely dissatisfied, right, it can push us through. Once our desire becomes stronger than our fear, now we can move forward toward a more perfect unity because it can overcome. But we need that. We need that desire driving this. The desire is the engine. If we don't have that, we're going to stay where we are because that's much easier, much less scary to take this new direction. But even here, there still is an inherent problem that we've got to deal with. I don't know if you remember Marshall McLuhan from the 60s. A lot of allusions here this morning, I guess, right? Do you remember the medium is the message? Ever heard that one? What he meant by that is that the medium that we use to convey our messages actually speaks at least as much and probably more than the content of the message itself. So what are you using? Are you using broadcast? Are you using social media today, back in the 60s? You know, are you using television? What medium are you using? The medium is really what's communicating the loudest, regardless of what the content, what the message would actually be. The medium is the message. And how we communicate the gospel, how we communicate Jesus is antithetical to what Jesus was all about. And that is a problem. Even if we start to say things that sound like Jesus, if we're still saying them through the lens of the Promethean mind from churches that are built on ascension, then we're going to miss what it really is all about. We've talked a lot about here, uh, a lot in here about EPIC. And that's the acronym for Experiential, Participatory, Image-Based, and Communal. And the reason that that was actually brought up is because younger generations process information epically. Not like the modern generation from 500 years ago, which instead of experiential is propositional. We like to propose truths, you know, and think about them cognitively and intellectually and work them around in thought experiments, not really experience them. And instead of participatory, we're representational. One person represents to the rest of the crowd what is going on but only one is actually participating. Obviously, word-based instead of image-based and individualistic instead of communal. We in the modern world, the Western world, since the Enlightenment, this is the way that we look at the world. This is the lens through which we process information. And so here comes our scriptures. But guess what? They were written epically. The ancient peoples were epic. They were experiential, participatory, image-based and communal themselves. And what they wrote can only be understood through an epic filter, an epic lens. And if we don't have that lens at our disposal, we're not going to be able to understand what it was all about. We're going to read, we're going to interpret, we're going to express the exact opposite of what really is there on the page. What our great mystics and saints have been telling us for 2,000 years and counting because we're still looking at it through this different medium. 
and the way we communicate it non-epically kills the meaning, the original meaning, because it makes it intellectual as opposed to experiential. And it makes it fear and legal-based as opposed to love-based, gratitude-based. Until we actually engage the story ourselves, experience it, participate in it, accept the fact that it's metaphor. Go more image-based rather than word-based. Our slavish, you know, just interpretation of literal meaning of the words, rather than allowing them to expand metaphorically, is part of the problem as well. And of course, not understanding that a Christian, by definition, is part of a group. We're part of a family. Christianity was never meant to be individualistic. There was an ancient Christian saying, one Christian is no Christian at all. It has to be part of a group. And so this is the way that we're going to have to start changing. And it's difficult to do. I'm telling you it's difficult to do. Even as I say these words, and your head may be going up and down again because, yeah, that makes sense. But I'll tell you what, it took me 10 years from the time I first started to uncover some of these things. And it was blowing my, my world, right? For, I first started to uncover them. And I understood them. And I could actually teach them because I was a young pastor then. But it was 10 years before I actually had that first breakthrough where it started to make some sense and actually started to change my life in terms of the way I thought, my thought and behavior patterns, my choices, my attitudes, any kind of sense of contentment. It took that amount of time. Now, I didn't have someone like me pounding me on the head. And so hopefully that's what I can do for you, minus the pounding on the head. But this community is where we can steep in this and hopefully shorten that time frame, but it is going to take time. These things are so deeply embedded in us and they're so pervasive out there that it takes time. But this is the kind of switch that Jesus is talking about. This is the kind of all-inness that Jesus is talking about if you want to follow him. The spiritual life, the spiritual journey is like, unlike any other journey that you will ever take in life. And I wanted to try to see if I could get that a little more across to you by going into another tradition. This would be the Taoist tradition, ancient Chinese Taoists. And Jesus is so sparse when you read the Gospels, he may give you one line. Now that line is so loaded. I mean, there's so much in it. But again, because we're looking at it through this non-epic lens, right? This modern Western Promethean lens. We don't see what is really there. But when you hear something that's a little bit more expounded upon in another tradition saying exactly the same thing, maybe it can start to sink into what we're talking about. In this particular story written by Chuang Tzu, probably in the second or third century BCE, it's a story of a, a young disciple, a, an, an acolyte, a, a monk in training, who is just having the hardest time. No matter what he does with his master, he just can't get it together, and he's starting to really lose it. The stress and the anxiety is going through the roof. He keeps going back to his master and complaining, as I just can't do it. Finally, the master just holds up his hand and said, hey, I've taken you as far as I can go with you. Why don't you go see Master Lao? So Lao Tzu was the was the kind of mythical founder of Taoism. And so he travels seven days and seven nights to go see Lao Tzu. And when he gets there, immediately Lao Tzu just sees, you know, all of the, he, he actually says, who are all these people that you brought with you? 
And he turns around, there's nobody there, and he's freaking out, you know. But he sees that in him, right? All this craziness, all this stuff. And he finally tells him, if you persist in trying to attain what is never attained, if you persist in making effort to obtain what effort cannot get, if you persist in reasoning about what cannot be understood, you will be destroyed by the very thing you seek. To know when to stop, to know when you can get no further by your own action, this is the right beginning. Now that sounds very Zen, right? That sounds very whatever, and it's like, okay, what the heck? But this is what a descent into uncertainty and knowing feels like. Everything that you try to do to grab something by its throat and make it yours is just going to take you further and further away. It is literally like chasing the horizon. It literally is like chasing the end of the rainbow. You can't do it by your effort. It feels more like a falling, a pushing off and a falling back. It doesn't feel like a leaning forward and trying to acquire. We can only approach it through words like this or sayings like Jesus gave us to try to get some of, you know, evoking of the sensation of what it's like when you really are going into that place. You want to talk about being born again? This is what it's all about. Are you willing to let yourself be completely emptied out? Are you willing to be born again into unknowing and uncertainty as much as you did the first time? What did you know as an infant? Couldn't do anything for yourself. The lights are blinding. Suddenly it's cold. Suddenly you got to breathe. I mean, all these things. What the heck? Are you willing to re-experience that kind of uncertainty again? If you're not, then you either just let it go and live your life on the material side, or you're banging your head against the wall and ending up like this poor disciple with all these people following wherever he went. A couple more. The disciple, after he had his initial talk with Lao Tzu, asked for admittance, took a cell, which would be a room, and there meditated, trying to cultivate qualities he thought were desirable and to get rid of others which he disliked. Ten days of that. Despair. <laughs> striving for perfection. Striving again, just doubling down to do this on his own power, under his own steam. Even though he heard what he heard, he's still trying to fix things. He's still got the Prometheus mind. He's still trying to do it under that auspice, and it's not going to work. Despair. Miserable, said Lao to him, all blocked up, tied in knots. Try to get untied. If your obstructions are on the outside, do not attempt to grasp them one by one and thrust them away. Impossible. Learn to ignore them. And we talk about this all the time. You know, the, the old Native American grandfather with uh, talking to his grandson, he tells him, I have two wolves inside of me a bad one and a good one, and they're constantly fighting, and the little boy asks, well, which one wins? He says, the one that I feed. These things that we say we don't want in life, the more we try to push them away, the more energy we give them, the more they become these huge monolithic structures, like Nina on heels in front of us, that cannot be overcome. But if we turn over here to the things that we want, or just back to the moment, just allow ourselves to be immersed in the moment, they dissipate, they fall away. This is what he's telling him here. 
Jesus says the same thing, but in different words that we don't hear as clearly anymore. And he says, if these things that are blocking you all up, if they are within yourself, you cannot destroy them piecemeal, but you can refuse to let them take effect. How many times have we talked about your emotions are not under your control? They're going to come and go as they do. You have no culpability in those emotions or in where your mind goes. But you can control what you do about them. What effect are they going to take? How are they going to affect the relationships around you? That we can do something about. And indirectly, if we keep doing that, we are literally rewiring our unconscious minds. It's the way it works. It doesn't work any other way. But we have to be willing to practice this kind of awareness for this to work. And then he says, if they are both inside and outside, do not try to hold on to God. Just hope that God will hold on to you. You know, What is this? This is an admission of powerlessness. And I think the way Judy read it, we're powerless, but we're not helpless. Right? We're powerless, but we still have a choice. We can make choices. But we have to realize that our choice has to be to hitch our wagon to the power that's greater than ourselves. That will take us out of the ditch. That can restore our lives to sanity. That's the way that it works. But until we admit that, until we realize that we can't even hold on to God necessarily, but God can hold on to us if we allow, if we're willing to submit. All of these principles here, the... The, the poor acolyte, the poor young monk, you know, he's still just spinning. He says, I'm like a sick man who takes medicine that makes him ten times worse. Just tell me the first elements and I will be satisfied. Ah, yeah, just tell me the first elements and I'll be satisfied. Who does that sound like to you? Remember when Philip said to Jesus, just show me the Father. Show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Don't we all want that? Something that short circuits, shortcuts the system. Just download, you know, like that scene in the Matrix. Do you know how to fly a helicopter? Not yet. And then she can go fly the helicopter. Wouldn't we all love to be able to do that, right? Well, it doesn't work that way. These things, these important things in life can't be transferred. They have to be experienced. So Lao Tzu replies, can you embrace the one, the one, capital O, and not lose it? Can you foretell good things and bad things without the tortoise shell or the straws? Can you rest where there is rest? Do you know when to stop? Can you mind your own business without cares, without desiring reports of how others are progressing? Oh, there's a huge one. Can you stand on your own feet? Can you duck? Can you be like an infant that cries all day without getting a sore throat or clenches his fist all day without getting a sore hand or gazes all day without eye strain? Now, what does that sound like to you? Do you remember when Job screams at God in the whirlwind because of everything that he has gone through? How can you have, let this happen to me, Lord? What does the Lord respond to him? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you ever, in any of your days, commanded the morning light? Same idea. Why are you asking me these questions? There's nothing I can give you that is going to make any difference. But when you, like an infant, can start to just live your moments, something is going to change. 
Something is going to happen. He says, you want the first elements? The infant has them. Jesus always holding a child up as the emblem of kingdom. The infant has them, free from care, unaware of self. He acts without reflection, stays where he is put, does not know why, (laughs) does not figure things out, just goes along with them, is part of the current. These are the first elements. It's that pushing off. It's that letting go. It's selling everything, as Jesus said that we must. It's accepting our basic nature of dependence, of vulnerability, As long as we treat spiritual life as a task to be completed, we're defeated before we even start. Spiritual life is not a task. You've got to think about that. A task is a means to an end, right? The things that we do in a task are means going to an end. But spiritual life is only about the means there's really no end. Actually, I think, Judy, did you read that again? Your, your reading was so connected. What the spiritual life is really is an eternal becoming. There's not an end, but there's all of these means that we use. If we treat it like a task, we're going to be looking at it through the Promethean mind again. We are going to lose our way. It is going to morph into something that doesn't work. We approach kingdom from a point, typically, of lack and want, that we must require something. But Jesus is saying over and over again, and especially in Luke 17, where he said, it's not out there someplace to see by observation. He said, it's within, it's among, it's in the midst of. The kingdom, Jesus says, is already here. There's nothing out there to acquire. We are starting from a place of abundance. Everything that we need, everything that God has or could possibly give us is already here and within. If we take a look at these sayings of Jesus at Matthew 13, this is what he's trying to get across to us. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field Think about that for a second. Does that sound weird to you? He found the treasure. Why doesn't he just walk away with it? He puts it back. He rehides it. And then he goes and sells everything that he has so that he can buy the field in which the treasure is found. I mean, to us, that just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But think about what is going on. This is pure genius in two lines. What has Jesus done here? Even if we find the treasure, it cannot be ours until we sell everything, clear everything out. That's the key. Then it can come in and actually make a difference. This is the basic truth that he's trying to get across to us over and over and over again. And we hear something like that, and then the next thing goes, what do I do about it? How do I do this? Remember the young man that comes up to Jesus and asks the same thing. How do I obtain eternal life? And looking at him at Mark 10, 21, Jesus felt a love for him. He knew he was sincere. And he says, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. He's not ready to do that. He walks away sad. We have to be ready to do this. It's not easy. 
Luke 14, verse 26, If any of you come to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not give up all he has cannot be my disciple. These are harsh sayings, especially in that culture where family was absolutely everything. To be outside a family was tantamount to a death sentence. What is he talking about here? He's basically telling us this isn't about learning and acquiring. It's nothing you can do by assent only. It's not about just retooling your Promethean mind and doubling down and doing it better and harder and faster and longer. It's about unlearning. It's about shedding everything you think you know, giving up all we have, all we cling to, to stop striving and to let go and let these things die so that something new can come in. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that we don't go to work in the morning. This doesn't mean that we don't save. It doesn't mean we don't buy insurance policies anymore. Of course, we still do all those things. That's a physical part of life that we need to be responsible for. But in spiritual issues, the spiritual life is like no other journey will take. And this is where we have to realize we are getting to that Jesus is trying to retool us. In that first treasure hidden in the field, the man already knows where the treasure is. Acquiring it is not seeking it out there someplace, but selling everything that is not kingdom in his life, in his persona, in his spirit. The kingdom or the spiritual life is not getting something that we lack, not acquiring something that we don't have. It's letting go of everything that masks, masks the fact that we already have everything that we need. If we think kingdom, like Dorothy Gale, is somewhere over the rainbow, right? We're always going to be looking in the wrong direction. And yet, the genius of L. Frank Baum, right, at the end... She realizes, next time I go looking for my heart's desire, I'm not going to go looking any further than my own backyard because if it's not there, I never really lost it to begin with. Again, here, now. If we're starting from need, if we're starting from lack, we're motivated by fear. If we're starting from abundance, the fact that everything is already here, then we're motivated by love and gratitude. Jesus has been telling us this whole chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount not to worry, not to judge. Why? Because worry is motivated by fear. Fear of want, fear of need, fear of lack. And it takes us out of the present moment. Judging is motivated by fear of punishment. We've got to have the right standard. We've got to be adhering to the right rule, right? And it takes us out of connection with each other. Those two are closely related. He starts the chapter off with those because they're paramount. Actually, he ends six with worry and then he jumps into judging. And so, returning to the sermon now, where we left off in chapter seven, I've been talking about stop the striving, right? Stop the seeking and start the selling off. But doesn't Jesus tell us to seek also? To seek and we will find? Yeah, he did. But until we understand the Aramaic underpinnings of this saying, then we're going to miss it as well. Take a look at Matthew 7, starting at verse 7. 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Ask, seek, and knock. We need to understand those three terms so we can see where it is Jesus is taking us. The word ask, selu in Aramaic, means an intense questioning. It's not a you know, just a kind of a casual question. This would be like a police interrogation. There is a stoked desire, a need to know behind this that is motivating and it's coming from the inside out. Selu is related to the word selah by root, which is the word for prayer. And we've talked about this before. Selah was an ancient hunting term, which meant that you would go and you'd lay a trap, lay a snare, cover it over, retreat to the blind, and wait with every nerve on a hair trigger, waiting for something to happen, waiting for the arrival of something, a leaning in, an anticipation of. Salu carries that same idea in the questioning. You know, It's this intense desire. It's a craving causing us to clear that space, to watch for the arrival of something. It is the state of divine dissatisfaction, the state of blessed unrest, that takes us beyond the fear, beyond the risk. It unparalyzes us and allows us to be able to move. To move how? To seek, be'ah in Aramaic, which means to search diligently from inside to outside. Notice the direction, from inside to outside. It's a passionate commitment to leave no stone unturned, to leave no unexplored corner, to shine in the light everywhere, to expose everything within yourself, to open all the windows, if you will, to remove everything that hinders where, is it, where it is you really want to go, the freedom that Jesus is talking about. It's a selling of everything, a seeking by selling, if you will, just like we talked about with Lent, doing the emptying out, but for this positive reason. And then finally, knock, koshf in Aramaic, literally means to pound a tent peg, to pitch a tent, or to strike a musical note. And that threw me when I first got that definition, because how does that deal with this? But it also shares its roots with kadash, which is the word for holy, which means to set something apart for a specific purpose. So when you actually pitch a tent, you've created a space that now can be set apart for a specific purpose. The family can gather there. When you strike a musical note, it's now ringing in the air and everyone can gather around it and hear it and have a common experience. It's realizing something in the moment that can be shared. The roots also point to preparing ground for planting, kind of the idea or the image of a bent head over this prepared place. But the idea is the presence here becomes real. So even though Jesus is talking about seeking, there is a process here, this process of kingdom that starts with desire, the divine dissatisfaction, moves to the release of selling everything that we have, to leave no stone unturned, to be willing to let go of everything, and then moves to the realization of something that we didn't have before, a connection, a reality of presence that we could not experience before. And so the main three questions that each of us need to have answered as a human being, right? Who am I? Why am I here? 
Where am I going? Those can start to be answered in the experience of this journey if we are willing to go through this process that Jesus is talking about. If you want to know the answers to these questions badly enough, that's the ask, that's the salut. You will let go of all that is false, all your self-illusions, your distractions, your programs since early childhood for survival and for happiness, your core beliefs. That's the seek, that's the bayah part. And what is left after everything false is gone is the truth that can make you free. That's the kosh. That's the realization, the knock. But it won't feel like any journey you've ever taken because you actually have already arrived before you begin. We're all sitting here. Thomas Merton said, wouldn't it be great if we could all see ourselves shining like the sun? We're all sitting here shining like the sun. We're all sitting here with everything that we possibly could need. And it's been this way since birth. To realize that is the spiritual journey. But it won't feel like a journey because you've already arrived before you begin. The end of your journey is in the beginning, and the beginning is in the end. It's all about the means, not the outcome. And when all is said and done, the journey is just going to feel like living your life. Just living. But living with a new intensity, living with an awareness, living with presence that you didn't have before. And then at some point you're going to realize you're actually enjoying the ride. And then you know Jesus has welcomed you into kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for this elaborate communication. Help us to adjust the medium. Help us to adjust the container of the content so we can actually see what it is that you have for us to become more and more convinced that it's true, to become convinced enough that we'll take the first step into uncertainty, into the place that scares us the most, to be willing to go because that's where we'll find you in the place that we were too afraid to look in this moment that sometimes hurts so much that scares us so much that's where we'll find you so help us more and more to lean in Father stoke in us the desire that will take us beyond the fear and the risk that keeps us in place. We want this, Lord. We wouldn't be here this morning if we didn't want this. Help us to want it more, enough to take our first steps. And thank you for being there every step of the way. Never let us forget, we can only love and do any of this because you did it first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.